Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Owen Humphreys, finds specialist, particularly Roman finds, at Museum of London Archaeology. On today's episode, Owen talks about his PhD on craft tools in Roman London, including what they can tell us about life in the city at the time, the misconceptions we can have about craftsmen, particularly concerning how varied their experiences were, and how a tool for calming horses got misidentified as a ritual castration implement. He also chats about his recent postdoctoral work on the collection of Roman leather at the Museum of London, his experiences working on the famous Bloomberg excavations, and why he didn't used to like the Romans in much the same way that he's not a big fan of the Beatles. We also discuss the importance of not expecting too much of yourself and becoming all consumed by your work, and how you should always put your mental well-being first. I'm very grateful for Owen for being very candid as well about his own struggles with mental health on this episode, and talking about how he's learned to find the best balance that he can between work and his life outside of work. Um, for many of us who do archaeology, uh, study the ancient world, uh, we do it because we're very passionate about it. We see it as being something that maybe not all the time is work and we get a lot of enjoyment out of it. But the flip side of that is that you do risk burnout if you don't take time away, if you don't have other interests, if you don't broaden your broaden your horizon, so to speak, I suppose. And uh, as Owen discusses, it's been very important for him to know when to draw the line between work and life outside of work. So, so I'm very grateful for him opening up and talking about that on today's episode of the podcast. And as always, very grateful for you for tuning in. So thanks for joining me and on to the show. back off actually no we'll start off with you've recently come back from doing a postdoc right um so what was the what was the postdoc all about yeah so that was really good actually um I, i'd only worked for mola for two months when i disappeared for six months to do that and they were really generous to give me the time off that was um money came from the ahrc it was six months looking at the roman leather in the museum of london's core collection which is basically everything they excavated from the mid 19th century up to the 1970s when they set up the formal uh, department of urban archaeology and it just sat there for hundreds of years. It had been on their displays, but no one had ever really done a, a proper thorough study of it. There'd been a couple of sort of abortive attempts to do them before. They'd never gotten published. They'd never really gotten finished, some of them. Uh, so it was just a chance for me to go and look at that material. So I'd never looked at Roman leatherwork before. I do leatherwork in my spare time, and I did my PhD on craft tools. So I'm really interested in making things. And it was a fantastic opportunity for me to just spend six months getting to know the material and develop systems for recording it, hopefully in advance of me doing some more work on Roman leather in the future. Yeah, that is, uh, it's interesting how much material is kind of just sitting around in museums. Uh, obviously, when we think of archaeology, we want to go out and make uh, new discoveries, which is great. But at the same time, there's an awful lot of stuff that's just kicking around in archives that people are on display in museums that people haven't really looked in depth at. I mean, I suppose like here at Kent, um, Ellen Swift does a lot of that. Her recent project on uh, artifacts from Roman Egypt, a lot of that stuff came from the Petrie Museum in London that has just been sitting there, uh, still in wrapped up in the material after it was taken from an excavation site from over 100 years ago. Yeah, sometimes I think we we almost forget that there's a lot, there's a lot of things that we can discover about the Roman world by material that's kind of just sat there that we can just easily get to what, what sort of stuff did you get out of that i mean what's the 
are you going to publish anything out off the back of that at all? Is there is there kind of anything that you can talk about in that regard that you found in doing the postdoc? Well, there's kind of two bits to it. Um, kind of the analysis of the collection itself and the me getting to understand Roman leather. And the me getting to understand Roman leather bit, that was great. I developed all these new systems and new database structure for recording it. And we're now implementing that here at MOLA because we've got um, the Bloomberg leather coming through and that's going to be thousands of objects. Um, so it's great that we've got you know a new system designed for recording that onto a database. And then in terms of the collection itself, yeah, it's fantastic to go back into these museum collections but they are also a bit problematic when you try to interpret them sometimes. So London is basically the only civilian settlement in the empire that we have a large amount of leather from. All the rest of them are forts and the like. And so you can look at something like the demographic pattern. And we've seen on previous little uh, smaller excavations that have been published, there's way more women and children in London than there are on these military sites, which makes a lot of sense. In the Museum of London's core collection, that number is ridiculously exaggerated. You've got um, way more women than men. But I think that's down uh, in a large part due to the fact that they were collecting women's shoes or types of shoes that women wore more than men's shoes because um, most men's shoes degrade to the point where you've just got a sole with some hobnails in it, whereas you get more um, sandals and one-piece um, carbatina shoes in women and children's sizes. And it looks like they got to one point and just thought, right, we've got enough soles. We'll stop picking those up. We'll just collect the rest of them. And so that skews the demographic profile. There's some really nice, really nicely preserved objects in there. There's um, shoes uh, complete with punch decoration all over them. I posted a picture of one of them on Twitter and it was being shared hundreds of times by people who are um, saying it looked like um, a Nike shoe. Um, there's gilded leather objects, there's um, a load of um, stitched cheap leather as well that I don't understand at the moment, but it's got beautiful um, embroidered designs on it. So it's a really, really nice collection. really helped me figure out how I'm approaching this material in London, but as like an assemblage, it's a bit problematic to draw any conclusions from. You make a very valid point about how our perceptions can be skewed by the survival of evidence, which is always something to bear in mind with the archaeological record. I, this is a this is a random question that pops into my head, and I don't know if if you have an answer for it at all. And, and if not, no worries. It's uh, what's the average shoe size for adults? Would you say in the Roman period in London less than it probably was today? I mean, did people? I mean, because they say that people generally in the past were shorter. So did people generally have smaller feet? I, yeah, I say I don't know if you can actually answer that, but just out of interest. Yeah, um, when people have average shoe sizes. Um... It's a bit more complicated than just figure out what the average is. What you want to do is take a whole assemblage, plot it on a graph, and then if you've got um, adult men and adult women represented in it, you're going to have a double peak where you have the most popular women's size, most popular men's size, and a dip in the middle where they overlap but don't quite equal those numbers. And those two peaks will be, I think it's about two sizes smaller on average than you'd get nowadays. But it varies from site to site. So that those peaks were a lot smaller in the Museum of London material, and I reckon that's because a lot of it has shrunk over the hundred years it's been in the museum's collection. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, you forget again how the, the archaeological uh, record can affect the, the representation of when we look at um, when we try to ask those questions of it, uh, how it can be skewed. I was going to say, well, uh, another bit on that point is that leather itself obviously only survives in particular circumstances. You only get it where things mm -hmm. are waterlogged, which is why we've got so much in London but nowhere else. But we only get one type of leather surviving. So we get vegetable tanned leather, which is leather that's been soaked for about a year in oak bark. 
Um, if you have something like uh, leather that's preserved by smoking or rubbing with oil, which is what we think they did in the Iron Age and what we know continued to be done in the Roman period because you get um, shoes tanned in that way in places like Egypt where they're dried, those shoes are completely absent from London. Uh, it might be part of the reason why we get so many shoe soles with no uppers is because and we get absolutely no belts and very little horse harness because maybe these are being made out of other types of leather that also don't survive to us. And that's the thing, isn't it? Sometimes, again, I think we forget that, as you say, there's, there's just more than one type of leather. Like, you know, what we have is, is representative, but even when, but still of a very small section yeah. of society or whatever, like it's, it's, yeah, as you say, there's a lot that doesn't survive. Even in when we have exceptional circumstances where things can survive and don't usually, there's still a lot that's lost alongside of it. I mean, carry on though with the Bloomberg, the Bloomberg theme. Obviously, you worked on the site, uh, as did I, although you were there for much longer than I was. And then subsequently, after that, you went on to do the, the, the PhD back at the University of Reading, which you also did your MA and undergrad at, if I'm right. Yeah, so I'd actually done my, I did an undergrad and master's back to back at Reading, and I was focusing on medieval archaeology at the time. I hated the Romans, um, <laughs> developed a real animosity. <laughs> A lot of people tend to say that, I've noticed, that <laughs> the Romans seem to be one of those things sometimes when I talk to people about them, that sometimes people just automatically just go, no, just no. They're like, they're not as interesting as, like, in comparison, say, medieval archaeology or, or, or prehistory. But uh, but you have been swayed as time has progressed, though. Well, the, the, the Romans are kind of like the Beatles. You know, I, I like the kinks. I like a bit of 60s rock music. I can't stand the Beatles because I'm always being told how brilliant they are and they just sound the same as everything else to me. And with the Romans, you're just constantly being told how amazing they were and their civilization and their ruins. I just got completely sick of it. Um, I went into Romans purely because of the money. There was funding available for a PhD on Roman tools. And I, was, <laughs> I was more interested in crafts and tools than I was in the Romans. But, you know, four years later, I'm quite thoroughly entrenched in, in those debates. The PhD itself was looking at tools in Roman London as a whole, right? It wasn't just it wasn't just the Bloomberg assemblage. Did you look more widely or was it mainly focused it was, on the Bloomberg? Style? It was um, all of Roman London. It was about um, just over 800 tools total, of which the Bloomberg ones were about 100. So it was the, the largest assemblage in that, but um, by no means all of them. Uh, I mean, because as you're saying, though, in terms of being told about the Romans, like you, you, as you were saying, I suppose, though, when people talk about the Romans, they tend to hit the same notes over and over again. Whereas the approach that you've taken looking at the tools, which Virgo is kind of looking at everyday life, it's not looking about what Augustus is doing or uh, also to some extent. I mean, obviously, you're going to have, I, I guess there is, military involvement in some regard but you know the tendency in the past has been particularly the focus on the roman army you're looking at what is going on on the streets of roman london like everyday life which is i suppose one of those avenues that previously hasn't been explored that much i mean obviously we have some some evidence but it's increasingly now i suppose uh you know a more rounded picture is starting to emerge uh, yeah absolutely I i'm interested in in urban societies and what life would have been like in them um i guess probably because if I it's sort of thing you imagine yourself going into the past I'd like to live in a city because the countryside doesn't do it for me and so I just like to know what life was like in cities in the past in terms of like craft and making things and going to work those sorts of themes people like they've talked about them a lot more in the middle ages I think because there's that direct evolution from the medieval craft guilds into you know modern or at least you know quite recent working practices whereas the Roman period is seen as 
this island on its own separated from the rest of time by the early middle ages um, and so no one's really traced any of this stuff back that far before in terms of the types of tools and working practices that i'm talking about in terms of like working people more generally the scholarship's quite heavily focused on um, inscriptions and things like um, tombstones and that um, and they get some fantastic evidence from it um, but we've got basically none of that in britain we you know almost almost exclusively have military tombstones here and so kind of everyday working people have disappeared if that's the only evidence you're going to look at was there a tremendous amount of industrial activity being undertaken in london because i mean london is obviously most prominently a, a trading hub is there a, a tremendous amount of actual manufacture going on in london in the roman period alongside that with the actual trade itself or is it coming in from from elsewhere or is, is a lot of industry taking place elsewhere and then coming to london um, i think there was a hell of a lot of industrial activity going on inside london there's a massive iron working area in southwark that was um taking uh, raw iron blooms in from um the wheels and manufacturing well basically it was a manufacturing center for the whole southeast of england there appears to have been massive amounts of leather working going on there were um industries making pottery in the city and around the city there were glass works and you know more broadly look at how we look at roman towns people have focused on this uh, on them as trading hubs and when you get to like the highest, most abstract levels of archaeological and historical thought, where people are building these big economic models of um, towns and society, there's these big debates about whether Roman cities were consuming, you know, taking stuff in from the countryside and kind of leeching off of them in order to survive, or whether they actually had a, a productive place in the economy. And I think um, the number of tools and the amount of other industrial waste we have from the city shows that they were acting as these important manufacturing hubs. I think it might be relevant that, you know, when you look at Roman period, you've got standardization of goods across the empire um, and some stuff that's being manufactured in one place and redistributed, you know, that's obvious why, obviously why. But you look at something like shoes, where shoes are being made all over the place. They appear to be mostly being made quite locally, but the fashions change rapidly across the empire. And that could be down to things like these towns that are important trading centers that also have manufacture going on, but things being made by people who have these contacts with the rest of the empire that can then spread out from the towns into the rest of Britain. That's how I'm seeing it at the moment anyway. Mm, yeah, I mean, there are very interesting questions about how does fashion change in the ancient world and who sets the trend? Beards in the second century. Does Hadrian start sporting a beard and everybody else starts doing it? Or is he kind of just representative of a general change in fashion? And it's interesting, like in terms of clothing as well, how that, that moves around and how, how people's appearance is affected by, by the interconnectivity of the Roman world. So, I mean, you mentioned some of them already. So, I mean, like what other, what other industry was taking place in, in Roman London? Uh, yeah, there absolutely was. It's, it's hard using any one type of evidence to get a clear picture of what's going on. So obviously I was studying the iron tools and you find more of those related to things like um, woodworking, metalworking, leatherworking than you do for things like pottery and glass making, which we have evidence from waste from. But yeah, there were a wide range of activities going on and there's an awful lot of quite specialised industries as well, I think. Um, so the tombstones that you get in continental Europe um, will be dedicated to things like, you won't just be a woodworker, you could be a cooper or you could be a wagon builder or you could be an interior woodworker. And when you look at the tools, you also have um, 
extremely specialized tools. So there is a tool specifically for cutting the channel on the inside of a barrel that the head will sit in. We've got molding planes that will um, I guess sort of mass produce decorative moldings to go onto furniture. There are dies for metalworking that you can use to produce repeated decoration on things like metal vessels. Um, and I think that these things would have you know, been part of people's lives who were specialists in this manner. You know, we don't have any inscription evidence for them from Britain, but the fact that we've got specialised tools like this indicates to me that they would have been here practising these extremely niche crafts. I suppose, again, uh, the, the perception that we have is quite broad specialisations in terms of like woodwork or uh, metalworking, etc. But as you say, like within those, there's all kind of sub uh subsections sub, sub genres i don't know that's what we're putting uh, but you know there are people that specialize on very very niche that have very niche skills in some respect so, i mean you know the skills it takes to design a wagon are not necessarily the same skills that it takes to design a boat i mean there's going to be a lot of overlap i guess but at the same time there's going to be specific things that are different about those manufacturing processes did people working in in various areas of manufacture do you think they actually moved around that much or do you think they just basically set up shop and largely stayed in the same place i guess it's a case of supply and demand you go where there's going to be a customer base but do you think there was a lot of movement in terms of in terms of these these craftsmen i mean do you get any evidence of that from the material culture that that you looked at of a sense of uh, migration of people moving around Uh, i can answer that question i want to quickly go back and address one more thing before we move away from the topic of um specialized craftspeople and these um, specialized industries. Um, we absolutely, when we look at the Roman period, you know, people talk about, you know, emperors, senators, equites, and this vast raft of freedmen that are just, or, or, uh, not even freedmen, just, you know, regular citizens um, who are just everybody else and don't seem to want to go into much detail beyond that. Um, you know, as well as looking at these specialisms, you can see somebody who, um, worked as an interior woodworker or a cabinet maker yeah would have had a very different working life to somebody who was say a sawyer um and a very just a very different lived experience you know they would be in a position where they've got a, a workshop full of specialized tools they invested a lot of money and they've got a lot of skill and they're producing a a product that would be desirable whereas if you're something like a sawyer you might be working in a team of people um not working for your own profit with someone else supplying the tools and the materials performing a really unskilled task you can imagine we were talking about um, commercial archaeology earlier you know the sort of job instability that would come with that with you being easily replaced so i think it's important when we're looking at everyday life in the roman world that we try to get at the fact that people would have had very different experiences of everyday life you know the people who we dismiss as everybody else after the emperors and the senators would have been what like 95 percent of the population in terms of movement we've got all this evidence for london as a trading center we know that there are people coming here from all over the empire we know that the material culture of the settlement has a lot more of a european flavor than even a lot of other um, towns in britain and that really does carry over into the tools so there's examples of tools in london that you won't find anywhere else in the country but you will find in europe there's um, a really nice axe Uh, that's of a type that's mostly found in um, Pannonia. How far this is just the movement of objects um, into London or the movement of specific craftsmen or maybe even the working practices associated with them is obviously difficult to say. But it is really noticeable that the types of tools you find in London are different from the rest of the country and quite similar to what you find in Europe. At a more local level, with 
thinking about one person's life and how much they'd move around. I think one thing that I didn't, I haven't yet been able to address satisfactorily is how much these craft identities and lived experiences are fixed across someone's life. So you sort of imagine somebody um, being born into a family of carpenters, you know, being apprenticed into that, growing up and then doing that for their entire life. But there are these odd little um, hints in the form of inscriptions um, on, again, continental gravestones, keep going back to them, that suggest it was more complicated than that. So people, mostly when they die, might be wanting to put the last thing that they were doing in their life, the thing that they currently define themselves as on their tombstone, particularly maybe the most prestigious thing they've done with their life on there. But there's one tombstone, I can't remember where it's from, that it, it basically details somebody's life of failure going through all these various different industries and failing at them and trying something else. And I think that's something that would have happened a lot more that we just can't see when we're trying to take one object and tie it to a group of people. It strikes me as well in terms of, as you say, about tools moving around, that nowadays, if we want to go to a sh if we want to, to buy a tool, we go to a shop to get it, and tools are obviously mass-produced in in factories and they're all designed and they're produced in the same way i guess in the roman period all of them are going to have more, at least even minor differences if not you know quite apparent differences between like essentially what is the same tool i mean i guess that would be the case right uh yeah absolutely and you know when i was doing the phd i tried to tie that into practice theory and this idea that every tool is somebody's attempt to make something that's close to their interpretation of a particular model. I'm not sure that really went anywhere. Um, there are particular groups of tools that do seem to be um, made somewhere and exported around the empire. So there's this group of um, bronze brush handles um, that are made in continental Europe. They appear to have been invented by this guy called Agathangelus who stamps a load of the early ones, but then other workshops start imitating them. Um, we're not entirely certain what they're for, but it's been suggested that they're used as gilding brushes, and they make their way into London. Um, there's a fantastic twitch in the British Museum. They've got it on display as um, a set of ritual castrating shears for the priests of someone or other. Um, it's actually a tool for calming horses, um, you clamp it around their jaw and apparently this makes them more sedate uh, when you're trying to shoe them or clean them and it's uh, made of bronze and it's covered with these full relief busts of gods and bulls and lions and things and that definitely would have been something that was made probably in continental Europe and exported to Britain at some point and um, fantastically there's a tablet in Vindolanda which is um, between its correspondence between um, I think it was the um, between an official groom who's working in London and an acquaintance of his, and they are um, negotiating sending this tool back and forth between them. It's called a forfex in Latin, and it's been argued that that uh, refers to a twitch like this ridiculously well decorated one that we've got in London. So there were some tools that were being made in specialist workshops and exported around as high value pieces. But yeah, the majority of them would have been made locally by someone interpreting um, a broader cultural tradition through their own skill. And you can see that reflected in some of the tools. You know, some of them are better made than others. There's a really nice gouge 
that's been quite badly made. Uh, it's got a big, thick slag line running through the handle. Uh, it's also one of the few decorated tools we've got. So I can't help but look at that and think of it as something that, you know, an inexperienced smith was making, but they were still so proud of having made something, even though it wasn't that good. They felt the need to go all out and decorate it. Yeah, because I was going to ask, is there much evidence for, you might say, the personalization of tools? We tend to, I mean, even as archaeologists, like people do things like they'll stick like a band or something around their trowel or whatever, or carve their initial into it so they don't lose it or they drop it, they know whose it is. Is there is there much evidence for that in terms of people personalizing tools? And as we say, they're, in the production sense, there's always going to be variation just because it's always going to be very difficult for a person to replicate the exact same tool twice but i mean do they do they do much in terms of trying to make it like their own and make it they're going that extra yard as you were saying like decorating it anyway at all is there much much evidence for that in roman london there's a little bit of that in roman london we've got a few tools with marks filed into the handles um but i imagine if if that was more widespread it'd be something that would be applied to the wooden parts of the tools that we don't get surviving there is, in the Roman world, um, a bit of a tradition, this is something I'm still trying to explore and get my head around, a bit of a tradition of crafts being practiced by wealthy people. And they seem to be putting a lot of effort into, uh, of investment into their tools. So there's um, a plane from Goodmanham, which is, the body is made out of elephant ivory. And there's another one from, uh, I think, Cologne, which has got this, a uh, really elaborate um, kind of openwork iron casing to it. Um, obviously, this is kind of, it appears to be outside the usual realm of like everyday craftsmanship, but there are some situations which people would want a really nice, elaborate, uh, really good looking tool. Actually, on that subject, there are a few tools in London that I signaled out as being really obviously nicely made compared to the rest of them. There's um, a couple of braddles, which are simple uh, drilling tools, one of which has got a sort of faceted and notched um, handle, looks really nice. And another one of which is completely plain. There's no, nothing on it called decoration, but every line of the way it's made is so crisp and perfect. You can tell someone spent an awful lot of time making it. And I can only imagine that for the jobbing craftsman, being able to have a tool that was that nicely finished and that precisely made would have been a real, you know, mark of status and something that they were proud of compared to, say, um, the badly made gout that someone decorated anyway to kind of jazz it up a bit. Is there much evidence then for ornamental tools in terms of we get weapons in the archaeological records that clearly haven't been used, uh, you know, buried with people as symbolic purposes do you ever find much of that in london no um i haven't found anything like that uh, although there are a lot of miniature tools from the city so they appear to have been used maybe as um votives there's a really nice um pot that was found in the bottom of a well in southwark with a load of dog remains that's got um a hammer anvil and tongs uh piped onto the surface of it and so that appears to be a, a sort of, quote, ritual vessel um, associated with um, Vulcan. Uh, those are the attributes that the gods are always depicted with. Um, but no, there's nothing I can point to from the city that looks like it could, would have been made and deliberately not used. 
there are as i said those really nicely decorated plane bodies so the one from Gubernum made out of elephant ivory deposited in a ditch and um the excavators came up with this imaginative scenario where somebody robbed the house and then had to discard it as they were running away but if we think about uh context of ritual deposition it's possible that it was deposited in a ditch for that purpose we can't tell whether it was used or not but i would uh, i would imagine that it was used in a sort of an elite sphere i was on holiday in copenhagen recently and in one of the royal palaces in the queen's bedroom there's a colossal mahogany chest that you open the top of it and it's a lathe because it became fashionable for the danish royalty to learn how to turn ivory on a lathe I can only imagine that, you know, in some sectors of Roman society, it was fashionable for the elites to practice a craft. I suppose, I mean, it's quite a fascinating point, really, because as you were saying earlier, the tendency we have to divide up the Roman world into the emperor, the senators, uh, or, you know, the traditional pyramid of Roman society, which is largely made up of like 90 percent of people that are just pushed together into this one group. And I suppose we don't tend to think of like, almost the bleed over that exists the fact that the idea that senators might just for the fun of it partake in some sort of craft i mean we do it nowadays i mean people do things like blacksmithing just it's what's well, a hobby isn't it i suppose uh, and sometimes uh, quite often um partaking in a craft of some sort is a way of i guess clearing your mind almost uh, i mean you could have well, i was going to ask about this anyway but uh, as you say you yourself are, are a craftsman um i mean did you actually did you did you try to recreate any of the tools from the assemblage uh, i mean i know you do lots of other stuff as well were there any specific items from the roman collections that you were looking at that you tried to recreate yourself uh no i didn't have time to do um an experimental component to that project because uh, my very first act upon starting it was to break my arm in a shetland dancing accident so um <laughs> i was very much out of commission for crafts for several months uh, there's a load of stuff I want to do, though. Um, really nerdy things around um, using orbs of different types to make seams and then um, wetting them and subjecting them to wear to see what they look like when you pull them apart uh, to make sure that what we're you know, seeing on the Roman waist leather work, um, make sure that we're interpreting that correctly. Um, in terms of craft being you know, a sort of relaxing thing, in the literature, um, people obviously base what they say Roman opinion was on uh, Roman writers who are all upper class people and they generally write about manual labor with um, a really heavy disdain it's seen as something that isn't seemly for any person of status to be practicing and beyond the fact that I think there is some clear evidence for upper class wealthy people personally practicing trades we've got a lot of evidence for their involvement in, organi in organising trades in London. So we've got some uh, stamps in the collection which would have been used for marking leather and wood as it was being processed. And those have citizens' names on them. So it's people at a reasonable level of social status being involved in organising those trades. And as I said, that kind of privileges the view of the 1% the at the top to the detriment of everyone else. I think there were, would have been a lot of people who practiced manual trades, who did, would have enjoyed their work, who would have taken pride in what they did. And we can see that in the investment in some decorative or really well-made tools. Equally, there would have been a lot of people for whom work was manual labor and drudgery. And I think it's important not to, not to gloss over that when, we're, when I'm you know, going around trying to promote the idea that crafts are interesting and they're something worth studying and they weren't universally looked down upon in Roman society. 
it's worth stepping back to say, well, there would have been people who were quite disenfranchised in their labor. They didn't have a lot of control of what they were doing. They probably had terrible wages and found it very difficult to progress. And these tools would not have been symbols of, you know, personal enjoyment and status for them. Yeah, absolutely. Again, as you were saying earlier, I suppose you might say it's the uh, variety of the human experience. We, we sometimes have a tendency to uh, homogenize people's experiences and uh, group people together, but actually there's much more diversity that exists, not in just terms of what they're doing, but how, how they experience it. As you're saying that for some people, craft work is relaxing. For some people, it's a profession, but it's a profession they take immense pride in. And for other people, it's just a job that they have to just get through each day doing uh, and hope they can make enough out of it uh, through trade or, or selling or whatever to, to survive. So that was, that, was the, the, that was the PhD. And as you're saying, you did your MA in undergraduate at, at Reading as well. And you primarily focused on medieval period. I mean, you've, you've been in and out of, in terms of field work as well. Uh, I just wanted to throw a little mention in there of the likes of Silchester. You did Silchester, right? You must have done. Yeah, I did two yeah. or three years of Silchester and a couple of years of Liminge while I was at Reading. It, just in terms of uh, your time spent on, on those excavations at all and with Mona at all, is there anything that stands out for you over the years? Have there any projects really stood out? I mean, they all tend to have their own pluses and minuses, but is there anything in there at all that's really stood out for you? I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, the, Bloomberg ex, the Bloomberg excavations, uh, hands down, it was several months digging through five metre deep stratigraphy, all of it waterlogged, chock full of organic finds, which I absolutely love. You know, you've got wooden objects, you've got leather objects, you had basketry and textiles coming out of there. You've got bronze objects come up shining like gold and iron comes out perfect and uncorroded. You know, it was just fantastic, uh, like a once in a generation thing. I was actually working for PCA uh, when they started doing that job, uh, but I got offered a really high paying job in university admin or an extension of my contract at PCA or the chance to um, pack it all in and go join Mola. And I packed it in to rejoin Mola because I knew that this dig was on the horizon. And uh, luckily, they actually put me on it. Yeah, so that was fantastic. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I mean, as you say, I think it was a once in a generation uh, experience as well. And in terms of, well, I suppose as we've already kind of mentioned about in terms of the excavation that produces stuff. But now there's there's just so much material that's emerged out of those uh, out of that excavation. To, to sort through, to, to catalogue, to analyse, to, to synthesise into how we interpret it as well. I mean, that's, I suppose in some respect, it's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. But as we know previously as well, the, the caveat to that is that you need the, need the funding there as well to be able to, to keep, keep doing that. Sure. And uh, the Bloomberg project is really fortunate in that regard that the Bloomberg company have shown such enthusiasm for it. Um, Obviously, you were on the site. You remember what it's like. It was a commercial dig. We had to do some stuff really fast. We had to make sure that we kept a budget. Um, it's not like it was a paradise where we were sitting around on lounge chairs whilst people did the digging for us. But, <laughs> but kind of the, con the continued corporate enthusiasm for it, the fact that they've realized that they can make it something that they're known for um, has been really great for the post because it means that we have all these opportunities to go out and take the finds to places like the Mithraeum and show them off. Um, most of the finds have been written up, but the leather work is just coming through to um, assessment now. And, you know, we're hoping that Bloomberg will, um, expecting that Bloomberg will come up with funding for us to do something really interesting with that. Whereas there's 
loads of other sites from London's history that have been excavated and then just have to sit in the archive because there's no money to write up all of these really interesting but really niche groups of finds. And it's been great for me personally because you know I, I worked on the excavation and came back two years later and did the PhD using a lot of that material. You know it's two years after that and I'm back here again looking to write up the leather work. I'm sure they'll find something for me to do after that. So yeah it really it does keep giving for me. Yeah it was a rare rare situation where the as you say, the the people that basically own the site, uh, the kind of corporate side of things, where their their enthusiasm has remained undimmed uh, in supporting it. There are there are examples of that out there, but what they had was such a unique site. But the dividends that have come out of it are partly due to it being such a unique site, in tandem with that backing by the people that actually owned land and were undertaking construction on it. I mean, just in regards to the PhD, was the PhD? something you applied to do or was it your own idea? Because I was just wondering in terms of one of these things that always fascinates me is the overlap between people's interests, broader interests, and then their work in archaeology. So obviously, as we've discussed, you, you yourself do a lot of crafts. Was that something that was just there and it came along at the right time and you applied for it? Or was that actually something that you had in mind to do, uh, knowing the materials there. Um, absolutely right place, right time. I mean, one of the things I've liked about listening to the episodes of your podcast is it kind of helps demolish this idea that you've got to sit down and work out a plan and figure out what you want to do with your life and pursue it with this, you know, ironclad determination, because that's you know, been hardly the case with anyone. You just have these lucky breaks and you have these fortunate circumstances that you're able to take advantage of. I was working for Oxford Archaeology at the time, and I absolutely hated it. Um, and I decided one day that I'd had enough. I opened up Badger to try and find another job, and there was this PhD being advertised at Reading. And I thought, well, I'm not a Romanist, I'm not an artefact specialist, but I like crafts, and I worked on Bloomberg, so I know a bit about um, Roman archaeology in London. I'll give it a crack. And, you know, I wasn't expecting to get it, but I did, and it's been Romans ever since. So many people I have spoken to have said that they just, things just kind of happened, really. I mean, there is, there is always, like, determination there in terms of, like, you have to put yourself in those circumstances. But, yeah, very few people have gotten to where they are in their careers at the moment by setting out with that first step saying, this is what I'm going to do. It just tends to be a case of things happen along the way and you just, you just find yourself uh, in a position where when an opportunity comes along, you try to take advantage of it and uh, and if it pays off um, all the better just to, to take it back even further um, so what was it for you that originally got you interested in archaeology why did you decide to take it up as a subject as you say originally you were much more much more into medieval period and subsequently have gotten into the Romans but what was it about archaeology that attracted you to the subject initially I just um, you know I love history I liked reading horrible histories books and spending all my holidays tramping around castles and museums um, I think I decided I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was about nine I decided that historian wasn't a real job because all of the books have always been read uh, whereas with archaeology you're always going to find something new so there'll always be employment um, so yeah, um, having having said that, um, you know, you fall into a lot of things. I did decide really early on that I wanted to be an archaeologist and pursued that all the way through to going to university. Yeah, I think it's it, there's a lot of stuff in your childhood that affects you. It's interesting that you brought horrible histories because that for me is still the, I would say, a big part of the origin for me uh, in archaeology. And I suppose that's the thing as well, like particularly things like horrible histories and 
book but for me that a lot of it as a kid was history archaeology was kind of bound up in my time outside of school I enjoyed doing history at school but at the same time like I kind of felt like I never you know it was very much kind of a hobby thing um so even to this day I don't tend to view I was gonna say I don't view archaeology as what as work when I'm working on a commercial site and I'm just like knackered and I'm just it's raining then it's work but <laughs> by and large you know a lot of the time I don't really consider it to be a job so to speak yeah. like it doesn't feel like it's a, a job in terms of you know nine to five you clock in clock out and that's it and you leave your work at work i it's actually quite different for me um in that regard um i do treat it as work and i do work nine to five and then i leave and i try to do as little overtime and weekend working as possible because uh, that's a really big thing in archaeology you know everyone does it because nothing's got enough money and that's how things get done but, you know, I've had clinical depression since the last year of my PhD. Um, I can't afford to sacrifice my mental state in order to make archaeology work. So for me, it's something I really enjoy and it's something I wanted to do all of my life. But it, it has to be a job so that I can go off and enjoy any other aspect of my life. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that, actually. Um, I think it is important. I mean, we, we did talk before, before we started recording as well, about sometimes itself as a subject. One of the issues that we have is the fact that it can also be very easy for people to be somewhat taken advantage of uh, because they have a passion for it and we end up overstretching ourselves in doing what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we, we've talked before as well, and other people have talked on the podcast about both commercial work and academia and th th there is, there's a lot of difficulties that surround them as well. And, th I mean, the most important thing, as you say, is, is finding that balance that, that works for you in terms of work uh, and having other interests and, it is, I think, very important to have other interests away from, from archaeology. And again, I used the term earlier, variety of human experience. It's just important to have variety overall. Uh, if you spend all your time just doing one thing, almost certainly, I think, other elements of your life are going to uh, suffer uh, because of it. And, yeah, no, I, I completely agree that you need to be able to draw a line. And that's the thing, I think, you know, I mean, I find this in academia. A lot of people will say the same thing, that because you don't have prescribed working hours, it can be very easy to overdo it because you constantly feel like you sh should be doing something. And sometimes you've actually got to just say to yourself, like, no, like, I'm going to sit around today and I'm going to play, uh, like, PS4 all day or whatever just like getting away from it because also as well like you come back to it with fresh eyes as well which yeah obviously... exactly there can be a lot of, of pressure to put in all of the hours but i find that i would turn out a lot better work if i'm in there working nine to five and if i'm you know sat there all night trying to get something done and at the same time you've got to think long term because there i'm sure it's the same with you there are so many people who i went up through university with we went into commercial archaeology together who have subsequently gotten completely burnt out and jaded with the system and gone off to do something else. And they could have been brilliant archaeologists, but, you know, they got burnt by it. And so you've got to, you've got to think that whilst there might be someone breathing down your neck to put in all these extra hours, sometimes there isn't. It's just you putting the pressure on yourself. But also thinking long term, it would be better if you're still in archaeology in five years than if you put in the extra two hours this weekend. The problem that you have as well is that if you overdo it, if you overexert yourself and you put too much pressure on yourself and work all hours that God sends, um, you really do run the risk of falling out of love with the subject. And that I think is, that's, that's a really sad situation to be in because as we were saying that most of us come to archaeology via a love of the subject. So to kind of fall out of love with it is, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of sad at the end of it, really. I mean, it's, it's a, 
I mean, sometimes, I, you know, I completely get the fact that some people go down the road of archaeology and get to a point where they're like, well, oh, this isn't actually what I want, or this is not for me, and they want to go do something else. Um, but I can imagine there are people that just come to an end of it who just go like, oh, I don't want to do this ever again. Like, they never want to have any involvement with it ever again. Yeah, or even, I know so many people who, it gets, I know so many people who it gets to the point in their life where they know they still want to be in archaeology, but they just can't make it work anymore. You know, they can't keep living in terrible rented shared accommodation forever and working ridiculous hours just to have no money left on their one day off they eventually get. And that that is really sad. But, you know, even when the enthusiasm is still there, but it just there's only so long you can you can force it to work. Yeah. Uh, at the end, just like winding it down now, I always say to people like, do you have any kind of ideas about the subject in general of where you'd like to see it go in future? Although I think we've been kind of covering something there in terms of maintaining that work-life balance and perhaps sometimes we need a bit more of that do do you think as well like i mean just kind of staying actually with that theme do you think social media also plays a role in some of that as well because we obviously now people on social media there is a kind of pressure as well there's probably a lot more i think in the ways of a lot more in the way of people comparing with each other than they used to be perhaps not even intentionally Um, but it's still kind of there I don't blame social media uh, particularly because you can go back and watch a film from the 80s and they'll be blaming the actual media for doing the same thing. I, 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 think, I think if you're comparing your life to glossy photos, you know, whether they're in films or magazines or on Instagram or whatever, then, you know, you're never going to be happy um, because you're trying to compare your, your life to something that doesn't exist. Mm. Well, well, you know, that, this is kind of um, completely tangential to archaeology. But life is difficult. It's difficult for everyone. Um, I actually think that things like podcasts, where people have that chance to talk without things like time restrictions and, you know, without censorship, that you actually get a better idea of of how someone got to where they are in their life. Like, I listen to loads of them with comedians I really like or musicians that I really like. And there's someone who you can, you know, look at and think, you know, I've admired you since I was a teenager. You know, you've got a beautiful wife and a flash car and you do a job that most people would kill for. And they're still sat there talking about how they've got all of these anxieties and they spent X part of their life completely depressed and unable to do anything. And, you know, this moment where you saw them at the peak of their powers to hear that they are actually struggling like that. I think that honesty is the only thing that's going to combat the media narrative. And I don't think it really matters how you're getting that media narrative. If it's the only thing you're getting, then it can become quite toxic. Yeah, that's the thing. Like a lot of that stuff is not actually truly representative um, of what people's lives are like. I mean, you're only seeing like one aspect of their life, you might say, uh, and there's a lot going on that you don't see. And, and as you say, like listening to people and talking about the honesty in their lives, like you realise, I mean, as you say, yeah, life, life, life is difficult for everybody in its own way. I mean, it's interesting, actually, because that ties right back to saying about uh life in Rome well, with the, the craftsman it is there. something i genuinely take solace in you know if things are going bad for you you need to you can look back at the past and see how you know the people who are part of this you know magnificent civilization that some people will hark on in the daily mail that we need to return to they were living really difficult lives and they were struggling through and a lot of what we have is a hell of a lot easier than things were in the past so you know i do find that that actually does help i think it's one of the actual benefits that archaeology can bring is a sense of perspective about what your day-to-day life is going to be like yeah also i suppose part of it is trying to just do what makes you it's trying to establish like i suppose like in life what makes doing what makes you happiest i don't i don't 
I don't necessarily agree with that because I think there's far too much focus nowadays on being happy and trying to live in this permanently static state, whereas it's more it's finding a way of living that works for you, that you know is going is going to be compromised and is going to be imperfect, but yeah. it's still you know. I mean, that's why I use the word though, happiest, not happy, because you are going to have like downtimes. Like everybody has downtimes. Like I actually don't think there's anything wrong by one day you sort of sit there and you just think like, you know what? I just don't feel it today. Like I just don't feel like I, I'm just not in the mood to do what I need to do. And I just kind of want to sit here and not really do anything. I mean, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Sometimes I think, as you say, there's too much pressure on us to forge ahead and try to be happy and sometimes it's just kind of nice to just sit there and just be like no nah, no nah, not today it's just not happening and because you know as we were saying earlier like you can come back to it again but sometimes you just at that moment in time it's just not the right time exactly so i'm i'm not pursuing my academic career um really with any vigor at the moment you know i've got a stable job i've got you know things i research as part of work i've got a few little bits i'm finishing off outside of it and plans for the far off future but at the moment, I'm just trying to focus on be happy. Let's mm. enjoy what we've got now rather than constantly striving for the next thing, which academia yeah. really does force Don't you to do. <laughs> and I think that's why so many academics burn out. Oh, yeah. It, it can be a rabbit hole. And you're, you do sometimes wonder where, where does this all end? I mean, I was going to say the, the, the issue is that it doesn't ever end. You know, none of the work you do is ever going to be perfect. We're never going to figure out exactly what was going on in the past. We're never going to reach a conclusion and so you kind of need to take that pressure off yourself to try and be this perfect academic that doesn't exist any more than the perfect instagram body does you know we just accept that academia is about proposing ideas and challenging them and seeing what works and i think that makes you better at reading other people's work it makes you more confident what you put out yourself and it means you can actually have you know a a hopefully a happy career in an academic subject rather than constantly beating yourself up for not being Stephen Hawking. Also as well, I think it's important to remember to carry that thought into your head and your interactions with other people as well. Um, If you're asked to review an article, review it in a way that is constructive, critical, but constructive. I've had a reviewer feedback before where I've just sat there and just been like, how the hell does this help me? This is just being mean. I, I think actually, hopefully that is kind of changing. I think there is a new kind of movement now in academia. And you mentioned earlier social media and the downsides of it, but it's also the upside of it as well that you realise that a lot of people have similar experiences and a lot of people are very keen to to change that kind of vibe. Yeah. Whenever I was marking an essay or anything, doing undergraduate stuff, I'd always think to myself, you know, I, I had friends at undergraduate level who were trying really hard and they were still struggling to get the high marks. And what would I say if they'd given me this essay and they wanted some feedback on it? You know, because it is someone at the other end who, you know, well, most of the time we'll be trying really hard to do right and understand the subject, write a good essay. You know, you need to be helpful to them, not just dismissive or angry at them for having submitted an imperfect piece of work. And absolutely, that should carry over mm, into things like yeah. peer review. And like right, so right now, I'm sat here talking to you on this podcast because, you know, I've got a, a great job and I've been able to do the PhD. And that's something I was working towards since I was nine years old. But, you know... I could equally say, you know, I got to the point where I got the PhD and I'd spent a year in depression trying to get the thing finished. I spent a year afterwards being clinically depressed. I'm still taking the pills because you've got that massive confluence of the stress of what you're trying to do and the colossal feeling of inadequacy that you're not meeting up to this mythical ideal. You know, there's sort of ennui that sets in when you get bored of your subject before you finish writing the damn thesis. And then, you know, trying to go out there and sell yourself in the job market and then getting a good job and, you know, being or something like this and saying, you know, 
archaeology is hard to make a life in. There are a lot of people out there who are really struggling. I've got this great job, but, you know, I can still sit and be miserable because I'm depressed from all the other things that are built up behind it. Not to like end on a bump. No, no, I'm I mean, saying. I, I think everything you're saying is completely valid. I mean, it, it, as we've been saying, it, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I don't think it is necessarily a bum note because I think it's more about what we're saying is the fact that yeah, it, it's fine. It's basically it's fine to be like sad at times. It's fine to not feel like you've got the energy to do something at times because that happens to a lot of people. It's 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 normal. It's part of the normal human experience, I think, and I don't think. You know, the tendency is that stuff can snowball and you can then beat yourself up for kind of beating yourself up, so to speak. And you have to take your foot off the gas on that and actually think like, like take a step back and be like, no, I'm just going to just, I don't know the best way of terming it, but just experience this and just let it just kind of come and go and and then hopefully come out the other exactly. side get back to work and, and carry on. And then, you know, if it happens again, it happens again. It's just, it's just life, isn't it really? Yeah, and for all the problems that archaeology and academia have, you know, with the commercial system that we've got in this country, there is still more money in archaeology, in better conditions for archaeologists than there were decades ago. If you look at general quality of life, you know, going back to the Roman stuff, it's a lot better than it has been for most of human history. And yeah, things are still going to be tough, and you still need to address those, you still need to strive and try and make it better, but there's nothing wrong with as you say, taking your foot off the gas and just relaxing into the fact that, well, you know, I can get paid to do some archaeology now. It's super stressful, but I don't have to work every weekend to make it work. I can just enjoy what, what I'm doing while I'm here, do what I can do, and live the rest of my life enjoying plumbing and central heating and refrigerated yeah, food. absolutely. I think, I, I think that's a probably good note to end on. Um, yeah, no, I mean, thank you. Thank you for, 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 for the honesty as well, because I think that's, that's, that's the major thing as well, as we're saying. It's... Uh, you know, it's about being open and being honest about our experiences, which lets people know that there's nothing wrong with experiencing that. Like you're not alone and you're not not isolated. So no, I think it's in many respects, that's a very uh, a positive note um, to end on. And yeah, and, and just kind of moving towards anything now. Do you, do you have anything at all that you kind of want to advertise at all? Is there anything that you've got? Uh, no, not at present. The thesis publication will come out when it comes out. Roman Tools from London in all good bookshops, I'm sure. I'm not going to be working on publishing the Roman leather stuff immediately because I want to do a full project on all of the Roman leather from London. So um, fingers crossed I get money for that. And if I do, you can expect to see me on Twitter pretending I've got an absolutely perfect life looking at cool <laughs> artifacts. Okay, well, great. Thank you very much for this. Well, thank you very much for having me. No worries. for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. 
Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.